found in there. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we started this sermon last week from theology to doxology. In verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be. In verse 1, Paul was asking if Israel's rejection was total. And in verses 11 through 32, Paul is asking whether Israel's rejection is final. And Paul argues that Israel has not fallen into irreversible ruin. Uh, The same answer in verse 1 is expressed in verse 11. He said, I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? May it never be. And so Paul is pointing out here the, the, the future of the nation Israel, that they had rejected Christ. And, and so many were saying, okay, because they have rejected him, God must have rejected them. And Paul said, no, absolutely not. It does not work that way. And, you know, I, I don't know if we talked about this, but I want to point this out, that you go back to when God made his covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, because it's very important, I think, to understand that in understanding where Paul's coming from here. Why Paul can be so confident that God has not rejected the nation Israel. Because when God made the Abrahamic covenant, God called Abram and he said, I'm going to make a covenant between you and me. And he told Abraham, he said, take the sacrifices and cut them in half and lay them out. Now, the custom of that day was this. If you and I were to make a, a, a pact with one another, a covenant with one another, we would take the sacrifices, we would cut them in half, and then we would both walk between the two of them. And what that said was, if I break the covenant, you have the right to do to me what we did to the sacrifices. If you break it, I have the right to do to you what we did to the sacrifices. So God had Abraham lay out the, uh, the sacrifices, and then God put Abraham to sleep, and God walked between them. You understand the significance of that? You see, God knew that Abraham couldn't keep the covenant. But God knew that he could. And so Paul here is saying, look, you think that God has, has, has cast away his people. And he says, absolutely not. And so uh, Israel's rejection was not final. And and. Ethnic Israel's fall does not mean that they have no hope for the future because they absolutely do. And Paul shows here the interlocking destinies of the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> if you go uh, look at look with me at verse 11, he says, I say, then did they stumble so as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their future is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, 
what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul here is showing the interlocking destiny between the Jews and the Gentiles. Israel's rejection of Christ gave occasion for the Gentiles to believe in Christ and be saved. Over in Acts chapter, let me see here. In Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> we read these words right here. Paul says, or Luke is telling us, he says, And the next day, the Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the, when Jew, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things Paul spoke uh, spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves worthy of uh, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. I love that verse. Okay, now I'm not going in this direction this morning, but you see the doctrine of eternal election there. And as many as were appointed to eternal. Anyway, here's what happened. They're, they're teaching the Jews. They're everywhere that they went, you know, Paul said in Romans 1 16, for, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so Paul says that the, the gospel came to them. They rejected it, which gave opportunity for you and I to hear the gospel, for you and I to be accepted into the family of God. Uh, gospel jealousy can provoke uh, and and I want the riches of Christ mentality. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, when I was still a house painter, I was working at a house in Plano for a guy. He hired me to come in his house and do a bunch of repainting in there. And uh, the, the this family were were Orthodox Jewish people. They were very religious Jewish people. His name was Sai. Sai was a good guy. He was a nice guy. We got along great for a while. One day, <clears throat> he heard me listening to some music. And he was walking through his living room, and he just stopped and looked at me, and he said, You're one of those. And I had no idea what he was talking about for a few seconds. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, and I said, Do you mean a Christian? He said, Yes. And I said, Yes, I am. And that man, he, he went off on me. And he said, you know, Bobby, he said, he said, this is not personal. He said, it's nothing against you. He said, but you know what? You have taken something that's mine and stolen it. You people, that's what you've done. You have taken what's mine and stolen it. You have taken it and you have twisted it and made it into something that it's not. You understand what he was saying, right? <clears throat> he said, you act like you have God's favor. And I said, I do. And he said, so you keep the law. And I said, no. Jesus did. Oh, that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> but here's the point. It was obvious. He kept saying, you, you, you 
have such a joy about you. You have a peace about you. He said, and it's, he said, I don't understand this. He said, it angers me that you are that way with my God. He was jealous. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul says that is the purpose of what's supposed to happen. He says that Israel would see what God has done through the, through, through the Gentiles and that they would become jealous of this uh, and, and desire to have that, that, that what we have. Now, Sai, he, he wouldn't listen. I tried to present to him the gospel and he just shut me down quick and told me. He said, he, he, as a matter of fact, his exact words were, we do not speak that name in this house. Speaking of Jesus. So whatever happened, I don't know, but I just know that uh, that was an example of what God has done. But what sticks out here is that God really does want to save Israel. Okay, it's not like God is saying, look, and I can't tell you how many people have told me that God has turned his back on Israel because Israel first turned their back on him. But that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. That can't happen. Because you see, God knew what they would do. And by the way, this is nothing, uh, this right here is not plan B. When, when they went to the Jews and the Jews rejected them and said, okay, God says, well, then go to the Gentiles. It wasn't like God was saying, now I want you to go to the Jews and I hope they'll believe in you. But if they don't, then go to the Gentiles. That's not what happened. You see, God knew all along what was going to happen. He knew, and he has a purpose in that. And, and a lot of that purpose, we will never understand this side of heaven, but there is a purpose for it. But Paul continues by saying that Israel's full inclusion will bring even better blessings for us. Think about this. You and I, we are Gentiles. We have believed in Christ and we have received the, the, the inheritance of eternal life in him. We have received, Paul says in Ephesians, all spiritual blessings in Christ. And yet Paul is saying, you think that's something. He said, wait till the Jews come in and then see what you get. You see what he's saying? Hey, when they come in, he said, you haven't seen anything yet about what's going to happen. When, the, when, when it all comes together, when God's plan. You know, uh, I used to watch the A-team when I was a kid. And I used to love Hannibal Lecter. And he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together. And that's exactly what God's saying. He said, I love it when a plan comes together. And his plan will come together. I can't believe I just used the A-team in the red sermon. But... <laughs> There in verses 13 and 14, you know, Paul says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In these verses, Paul adds to the point about gospel jealousy by talking about his own ministry. Paul desires to make unbelieving Israel jealous. Listen, folks, that not only applies here, that applies in our lives as well. Do you know that the life that you live should make the unbelievers jealous? When you face a trial in your life and, and, and the unbelieving world looks at you and they see the peace that we have in Christ they see that we don't worry because we have hope in Christ. We don't worry because we know that God has ordained all things. And they should look at us and say, I want that. I want what I have. 
But the sad thing is, too often we react to those situations the same way they do, so we give them nothing to long for. All right? But gospel jealousy is a good thing. And Paul gets back there in verse 15 to the main argument in which the interlocking destinies of uh, Israel and the Gentiles. In verse 15, he says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? <clears throat> Israel's rejection gives occasion for you and I as Gentiles to be reconciled to God. And gospel jealousy, this is one of the goals of preaching, to portray Christ as being so loving, so satisfying, so sufficient, that unbelievers say, I want to know that Christ. Does your life lived cause the unbelieving world to look at you and say, I don't understand you. I want this peace that you have. I want this overwhelming joy that you seem to have. Now, don't get me wrong. We're human beings. We get down. We get depressed. We get mad. We get all these things. But we shouldn't do it like they do. We can face horrific circumstances in our lives. And you and I, we, we will get to a point where we can be down. And we can, it can be like we're down and out. But God says, no, you're mine. And I'm working all things together for good. You believe that? I'm working all things together for good to those who love me and are called according to my purpose, God said. Do you believe that? Then the next time your world falls apart, I want you to show me you believe that. The next time my world falls apart, I need to show you I believe what that says. And that's what Paul says causes this gospel jealousy. <clears throat> In verses, look, at, look at verse 16. He says, and if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, hang on, I lost my place here. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from before, from <clears throat> what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That's beautiful right there. That is absolutely beautiful what Paul's saying there. Because in these verses, Paul discusses God's purpose and the Gentile arrogance. We have to be careful. 
We see people out there who are, who are unbelievers and, and they're, they're living in sin. They're just abominable. And we look at them, we wag our heads and say, oh, Lord, I thank you I'm not like these other men. I thank you that I go to church. I thank you that when what we ought to be doing is look at them and saying, by the grace of God, there am I. We ought to smote our breasts and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Paul's telling these Gentiles, he's saying, look, just because the Gentiles have rejected this offer of salvation through Christ, and just because you have accepted it, he said, don't, don't hold your head up high to them. He said, don't become haughty. He said, because I want to tell you something. They will be saved, and they will be saved by the same grace that saved you. Do you know why I'm saved? Because I'm a good person. You don't believe that? Why don't you believe that? Because you sound deprived <laughs> or depraved. <laughs> okay, thank you. I am deprived, but <laughs> because Paul said there's none good. There's none. So I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm not saved for any other reason than the grace of God reached down and said, you're saved. You're mine. And Paul is telling these these, these uh Believing Gentiles, he says, don't point your fingers and, and wag your heads at these unbelieving Jews. He said, because I want to tell you something, not for the grace of God, you'd be right where they are. And we all need to understand this. We can never become boastful in what we have. The olive tree <clears throat> represents the people of God. The natural branches refer to ethnic Israel and the wild olive root refers to us, the Gentiles. So some of the branches, ethnic Israel, may be broken off due to their stumbling and over their stumbling stone and their unbelief. But the wild olive branch, which is you and I as Gentile believers, have been grafted in to share the nutrients, which is salvation in Christ. You see, God has a plan, and it doesn't look that way from our perspective. But I want to tell you something, folks. Today, God has his church and he has his Israel. But we're all going the same place. We're all headed the same. By the way, not only are we going the same place the same way, we're going through the same place, a thing, which is grace in Christ that God gives to us. Nobody is saved one way and somebody another way. We're all saved exactly the same way. And Paul here, his emphasis is that the Gentiles are not to boast over the broken branches. Believing Gentiles, we stand on the shoulders of the Hebrew patriarchs. We stand on the shoulders of Abraham. We stand on the shoulders of Isaac and Jacob and David and all of these. And so there, there can be no smugness towards unbelieving Jews. But, but we, can, we can take that a step further and understand that there can be no smugness towards unbelieving anybody. We, we have the tendency to look at certain people. We, we look at an Adolf Hitler and say, oh, what an evil man. Killed four million people. Well, he killed more than that, but he specifically killed four million people. Jews, by the way. And we look and we say, there is the epitome of an evil man. 
But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that there is no difference between Adolf Hitler and the drug addict across the street. And the only thing that separates you and me from that is the grace of God. And that's it. That's it. So Paul is saying, don't, don't look down on them. <clears throat> In verse 23, Paul shifts back to the future of Israel. When he says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Uh, God is willing to save them, and Paul now adds that God is able to save them. Have you ever heard somebody, uh, you know, I'll give you an example myself. When I was younger, I was not a very good person. I, I womanizer drunk, all this kind of stuff, all that good stuff. And, and, and I remember overhearing one time, I was probably about 20 years old, my grandmother talking with one of my aunts. And my grandmother was saying, I've been praying for Bob. And my aunt said, why? He's just like his daddy. You're wasting your time. There's no point in praying for him. But my grandmother didn't stop. Guess where I am today? I stand here saved. Don't ever look at somebody and say, oh, they're too bad. God can't save them because we have to. One of the things we seem to lose sight of is this right here, that no matter how sinful somebody else is, we were just like them. And so what I'm saying is God can save me, but he can't save you. Does that make sense? No. Absolutely not. And so Paul is saying here, he's going back. He says, God is not only can save them, uh, not only wants to save them, but he is able to save them. He can do this. Israel can be saved if they will not persist in their unbelief. God is willing to save them. And Paul now adds that God is able to save them. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you right here, if you are listening to me and you are lost without Jesus Christ, God not only desires to save you, he is able to save you. If, like Israel, you will repent of your sin, turn from your unbelief to the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews, speaking of Christ, it says he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And that he ever lives to make intercession for us. But it says, speaking of Christ, who is God, that he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, I love that word uttermost because you know what that means? It means to the uttermost. It means to the very fullest extent that, that, that Jesus does not save anyone partially. Did you know that right now you are as saved as you will ever be? Because you're as saved as anybody can get. You know, I, I hear people talk about along that same lines. I hear people talk about, <clears throat> I've had them tell me, you know, you need to get more of the Holy Spirit. You need to get more of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I want to tell you, I have all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. Because I have all the Holy Spirit there is. The moment... I got saved. And so Paul says they're not only able. So all of us this morning, we need to look and we need to recognize that, that Jesus 
came to save sinners. That's all of us. That's all of us. Verse 25 through 32, Paul talks about the mystery of, of Israel's salvation. <clears throat> Here we find the center of the chapter on the future of Israel. Paul says that Israel's hardening was partial and that it's temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. Until the fullness of the Gentile salvation is complete. Can I tell you something, folks? Today, it is obvious that has not happened. The fullness of the Gentile salvation has not happened. It has not been completed. And so where the gospel goes to the Gentiles in fullness, then something will happen. And you know what will happen? Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, when Paul says all Israel, okay, I tell you, this is a tightrope you got to walk right here. When Paul says all Israel, he does not mean that every single ethnic Jew on the planet will be saved. That's not what he means, because he's already told us that not all who are ethnic Israel are true Jews. A true Jew is one who receives and believes Jesus Christ, Paul says, and all of them will be saved. This, this comes back to, to the great doctrine of election. That, that we look at through history and we see that when Jesus died on that cross, he died for his people. And that every single person for whom Christ died will be saved. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, speaking of his, current, of his 12 at the time, but speaking of all of us in the larger picture, he said... You gave them to me, and I haven't lost any. By the way, he won't lose any. And so Paul here, he, he, he's saying that Israel's hardening is partial, but the end result will be all Israel will be saved. And you and I should always exercise caution and humility when we explore texts that deal with the future. Because all of our questions, all of our uh, differences about the end times and what will happen to Israel and all this. I want to tell you something, folks. They will only, they will only be known when the reality is revealed. That's the only time. All right. So when the gospel has penetrated to the ends of the earth, which is the Gentile world, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the family of God, then God's in God's saving grace, he will lift the veil and there will come a time. I want to tell you, you talk, you talk about an awakening. You talk about a revival. There's one coming when millions of ethnic Jews will re, will have their eyes opened and they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And they will believe on him. They will say he is our Messiah. They say we will have this man to rule over us. And that day is coming. And that's a glorious day, Paul says. It's going to be a wonderful time when this happens. When all the elect of, uh, of Jews will come to Christ. And when the gospel has penetrated to the ends of the earth. And then we get to a section in this chapter that. Well, let, let me read it, and then I'm going to tell you a story. Look at verse 33. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now here's the story I'm going to tell you. Let me give you uh, uh, just an overview of my, uh, my typical week. Okay, I'm off on Mondays. But even then, in the back of my mind, I have next Sunday in mind. For instance... As of right now, we're going to go to chapter 12. We may still be in chapter th uh, verse 36 here next Sunday. I don't know. But here's the point. <clears throat> then Tuesday I come in. And, and, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you know, I, I prepare my sermon, my, my lessons or studies for, you know, Sunday night and Wednesday night and all this. And throughout the week, I, I stop and I study and I read about what I'm going to preach about Sunday morning. And then Fridays I come in and I actually start to put my notes down on paper. Yesterday, uh, I'm sorry, Friday, I was in here and, and a lot of times when I'm studying and especially when I'm trying to put my, jot my notes down that I won't have, um, I'll get up and I'll pace around. But thinking, you know, how can I say this? How can I uh, phrase this? And I mean, do, and, and trying to say, God, help me understand what this says. And, and Friday, I, I mean, I was in here. I was walking up and down the aisles. I was doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I got to verses 33 through 36. And folks, I'm going to tell you. Now, my wife will tell you, I'm not the kind of person that gets overly excited or overly emotional about things. Well, I'm glad there wasn't anybody here Friday. Because I'm going to tell you what I did. I, I, I was, I'm telling you, I was back there in my study, and I was studying this, and I was elevated in worship. And I came in here. I knelt down right here, and I prayed. I prayed for you, told God how much I love you, told God I know how much he loves you. I thanked God for, his, for everything he does for us, for this chapel. Every, I did all this. I came in here. I grabbed a hymn book. Now, I picked the songs for every Sunday, and I, had for, I didn't even realize that I had picked this song. And I just turned in here, and I thought, page 19, page 19, <clears throat> to God be the glory. And I sang this song as loud as I could. Nobody here but me, which is probably a good thing. And I'm telling you, <clears throat> folks, we need to understand that from... Creation to the consummation of the ages. It's all for one purpose. You know what it is? To him be the glory forever. Amen. God deserves the glory forever. Paul has just spent three chapters talking about the future of the nation Israel, how much he longed for his kinsmen according to the flesh to be saved. And Paul says, you know what? They're going to be. And Paul comes to the end of this chapter and he is in awe of God's plan. And he ends with a stunning doxology, a fitting conclusion to this section of Romans. This gospel, this redemptive plan, this theology leads Paul to doxology, a hymn, that arises out of the depths of his heart. You know, that's the best kind. 
That is the best kind. It, it, it arises out of the depths of his heart. And so in, in God's infinite wisdom means that he does not need any help. Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? You know, it's interesting because I was reminded when I was doing this that I watched a video here a while back, a video clip. And again, I can't remember this preacher's name. You remembered it the other day, and I can't tell you. Uh, God came to him and said, so-and-so. Man, I wish I could remember his name. No, but close. Anyway, God came and said, so-and-so, I got this issue. What do you think I should do? Can you believe God came to me and asked me his advice, asked my advice? That's what he said. No, it's not coping. Yeah. But, but here's, listen to what Paul says. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? You know, God said the same thing to Job. Job says, God, why is this happening to me? And God said, Job, you don't worry about it. Who are you to counsel me? Who are you to tell me what I should be doing? You know, if you go back to chapter 9, I love what Paul says when he's talking about, you know, there in verse, um, let me find it here. Paul says, who are you, O man, to question God? And so, Paul's in his doxology here in God's infinite wisdom. He, he doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any counselors. You know why? Because God is self-sufficient. He is Yahweh, the I am that I am. When he brought Israel out of Egypt, you know who helped him? Nobody. When he gave them water in the desert, you know who helped him? Nobody. When he brought salvation to the world through Jesus Christ, you know who helped him? Nobody. God alone did this. These truths should cause us to lift our voices and sing the praises of God. Paul closes the doxology by praising God. Look at verse uh, 36, for from him. Paul closes this doxology by saying that God is the source of all things. That God is the agent by which all things are created and sustained to him. Or through him, and as the ultimate end for which they all were made, and that is to him. Paul says that all things are from him, through him, and to him. How many things? All things are from God, through him, to him. Do you know what the ultimate end of our salvation is? The glory of God. We, we too often get caught up into this trap that it's about us. That God saved me to make me happy. No, he didn't. Can I tell you something? You may not believe this. God doesn't care whether you're happy or not. What God cares about is whether you're holy. Because you can be happy and go to hell. But you can't be holy and go to hell. And Paul says that all things are to him, or are, are from him, through him, and to him. And, and there is nothing that you and I can do but glorify God in worship, praising Him in His infinite wisdom.
his matchless mercy, his astonishing sovereignty, his sufficiency, and his saving purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's been doing. Paul has said, look, I want to tell you something. He said, look at what God has done in my life. He said, you think that God can't save a Jew? He said, look at me. I mean, he said earlier, he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, you didn't get any more legalistic than I was. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, look, I am just like you. And yet God saved me. Can I tell you something? One day we will walk through those beautiful gates of heaven. And the Lord himself will stand there with his arms open. And you and I will fall on our faces like dead men. And say to you, to you Lord belong all the glory. You know, I'm not going to look at Cindy and say, well, we made it. <laughs> Ain't you glad we kept going to church? Ain't you glad we tried to be moral, holy people? We're not going to say any of that. You know why? Because it won't matter. Because it doesn't matter how good I try to be or how, how much I try to get there. I'm not going to get me there. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? To God be the glory. Father, Lord, we come to you in all of this. Father, we thank you for your word, for the comfort and the promises that we have. We thank you, Father, that despite their temporary blindness, their temporary unbelief, your people will come to you. Father, thank you that you have saved us. Not by works of righteousness by which we've done, but by your grace. And Father, help us to understand that in this life, everything we do. We are to love our wives to the glory of God. We're to love our husbands to the glory of God. We're to love our children to the glory of God. We're to work on our jobs to the glory of God. We're to come into this chapel and worship for your glory and your glory alone. So, Father, may we now exalt your name and lift you up. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Turn to number 19.